You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Tom Eisenman, who is a professor at, at Harvard Business School. He heads up a lot of their entrepreneurial initiatives and is also the author of this book, Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap for Entrepreneurial Success. Tom, you put the word fail and success in the title of the book, I'm sure not accidentally. And so, of course, we'll have to talk about what people can learn from failure. And of course, it's really the only way to learn is to look at failure, maybe to fail yourself. But I want to start by asking a question about entrepreneurship in general. And at Harvard, every MBA student is required to take a course on entrepreneurial management when they go through the program. And for many years, people thought of entrepreneurship and management as sort of different domains, right? Harvard's famous for cranking out these people that you stick into the large corporations. You just plug them right in and they climb the ladder and they know how to you know, manage massive amounts of resources and manned armies of people and so forth, following in the school of Alfred Chandler and rising to the top and playing golf and all the rest. And then all of a sudden you've got this entrepreneurial program, which is not sort of an add-on, but rather is an integral part of the education of managers. Do all managers need to understand entrepreneurship, even if they're planning on going into a, a corporate career? Why is it that you've incorporated entrepreneurship into the teaching of managers? Yeah, at the West Point of Capitalism. Yep. Um, it turns out our graduates are and pretty much always have been very entrepreneurial. Something like, I think the exact percentage of 46% of Harvard graduates within 15 years of graduation have launched a business. So there's a lot of it there. I mean, we also send a lot of people into big companies and consulting firms and private equity and all that too. It's when you have 900 graduates, you get to do a lot of everything. But we've had, like a lot of universities through the 80s and even into the 90s, was pretty light touch, you know, one or two courses in the MBA program. And for a long time, that course was taught by my mentor, Howard Stevenson. And Howard got the green light from a dean along the way, Dean MacArthur, to build out the entrepreneurial management unit. So we're one of the few top business schools that actually has a, a department, that we call them units, that's dedicated to entrepreneurship. And that's made a pretty big difference, right? So when you've got a group of, of faculty who are own a set of courses and have permission to hire and have a research agenda and so forth, many business schools will spread entrepreneurship out across other departments, strategy and organization and finance and so forth. So it's given us an edge, I think, in pushing things forward. And at this point, um, in a faculty of about 250, 30 of us are in that unit now. And uh, I think it's in size out of the 10 units, second only to finance, which is a little bit bigger than we are. And it's a blast. It's, we now, uh, we've always, we for a long time measured seat miles in the second year of our MBA program is purely elective. The first year is purely a required curriculum. We would, in a good year, edge out financial by a little bit. And then around the year 2000, HBS prides itself on being a place that trains general managers. We'd always had a required first-year course on general management. And we had a schism here, which you're probably aware of. Our strategy unit spun out of the group that was focused on general management. And so we ended up with a general management course that had no strategy in it. And then a strategy course. This is when Michael Porter got a big head of steam. And from that point, which is mid eighties, 
the general management course was reviled by students pretty much. When you start to talk about matrix organizations at General Electric and this and that, they gla you've, I'm sure you've seen it, they glaze over. It's so far from the world they've been in. We don't even have that in our curriculum. We've got to smuggle it into the strategy class somehow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. After suffering in that mode for 15 years or so, Dean MacArthur finally said, look, let's continue to teach general management, but let's put it in a simpler context, which is the entrepreneurial context. So we do think of, to your first question, entrepreneurship as a way of managing. It's a way of managing when resources are constrained and when you're doing something fundamentally new. And that's a pretty good description of a challenge that almost any manager in any kind of organization is going to face at some stage, you know, whether it be a government agency, a not-for-profit, a big corporation. Amazon, by the time they launched the Kindle, was a pretty big company. But that's a very entrepreneurial move, something very different. And uh, while they had a lot of resources, they'd never made physical products before. So they had to hire all sorts of people and build all sorts of capabilities. So yeah, we think for that reason, it's important to send 900 newly minted MBAs out each year with some perspective on how to launch something new in a resource-constrained environment. I once had a professor who said that the world is divided into splitters and joiners, people who emphasize discontinuities and people who emphasize continuities. And, you know, I've, I've been teaching strategy and finance for a couple decades. And when I began teaching those courses, it was always about mature companies. And then, of course, we've got venture finance and entrepreneurship. And I guess the question is, is venture capital and, and corporate finance, are these so completely different that they require, you know, different personalities, different skill sets, or is it really more of a dial, right, within a unified discipline? And same with strategy, right? When I teach my strategy classes, I'm always making reference to startups because VCs are asking the same kinds of questions. What are your moats, right? What are your barriers to imitation, right? Like, how are you going to have increased switching costs? Like, all the same questions seem to arise. But is it really a dial? And should aspiring managers right? Understand that through their careers, they're probably going to have to adjust this dial. Or would you recommend that people specialize, become an entrepreneur? And then when the company becomes mature, bail and start another company and, and just continue to emphasize that aspect of things and leave the, the other stuff for someone else. Yeah. When you must counsel students, a big part of our job is talking to people about their career choices. And I find when somebody lays out a menu of options that range from early stage startup to, I'm going to go to Google and work on this product there. My answer is often pick the one that like most lights you up at this point, because basically this is a long game. And if you're going to succeed as an entrepreneur, you need to master challenges, management challenges at every step. And they're very different at every step. And in no single job are you going to learn everything you need to know. It's going to be a set of jobs. And sooner or later, you're going to want to work early stage. You're going to want to work in a scaling startup. You're going to want to work in more mature tech companies. I don't think it really matters a lot what order they do that. There's an argument to be made, of course, for learning how to do something before you launch a business yourself or join a startup as an early employee. But the truth is I've seen lots and lots of MBAs without a lot of experience launch fantastic and very successful startups. So there are many, many ways to win here. And to your point about finance, oh boy, there's a world of difference because you teach it between early stage VC and corporate finance as it's taught in our required first year finance course. But as you say, it's a continuum. And when you get to late stage startups that have an operating history where you can run discounted cash flows and so forth, 
the dividing line between the type of thinking and the type of analysis you're doing in a late stage startup and in a regular public company, not all that different. It does blend together. Now, when you decide to write this book, Why Startups Fail, I mean, I want to hear why, you know, you decided to write the book, but really, you know, you offer a taxonomy of, of failures, right? A taxonomy of reasons for failing, both at the kind of early stage and, and the late stage period. Why is it so important that people study failure? You have a whole course on failure. I think that we tend to, in our examples, dwell on the successes, right? In our case method, we often feature successful companies. We, we look at people and say, you know, here's how you do it. And first of all, it suppresses the role of luck to some extent, but it also, if, if all you do is focus on the successful path, then you really can't sort of understand exactly why the decisions that were made turned out to be the right ones. What led you to emphasize failure? What led you to th think about this as a pedagogical approach? Yeah, I can come at this from a couple of different directions. It won't surprise you to hear. I mean, you can almost get philosophical here and philosophers of knowledge, philosophers of science would say that if you can't fail, you can't learn. Basically, if you've got a theory of how the world's going to work and the world works that way, you haven't learned anything new. You've validated your theory. And I suppose that's something that's, there's some value to that, but it's when things don't go according to plan, according to your expectations, that you're really jolted into, whoa, what's going on here? And so that's the motivation, sort of learning from failure. And of course you learn from failure in two ways, from direct experience and vicariously from observing other people's failure. The problem as an entrepreneur with learning from direct experience is you only get a handful of trials, right? It sort of can take, you can fail in days, of course, but usually it takes weeks, months, years, and there's so much going on in any startup that um, sort of teasing out cause and effects or what's the root cause of the failure can be very tricky, particularly since your emotions are so wrapped up, it's hard to think clearly. So that argues for vicarious learning, not only from failures, but from near misses. When we do air traffic safety and you train pilots, you you focus uh, not only on the disasters, but near misses, because there's a lot to learn from some, how somebody got into trouble and how they got themselves either through luck or skill or a good decision, got out of the trouble. So all of those reasons, and I started teaching startup management in earnest. I'd been doing a lot of what I would describe as platform strategy in the first part of my career. And around 2008, I started teaching the core entrepreneurship course and loved it. But case-based course, got questions from the students at the end of the course, as we always do. Look, you told us along the way that two thirds of startups fail, and then you showed us 30 case studies of success, brilliantly successful founders, several of them alumni who come in here and strut around like peacocks, you know, very proud to sort of show off their success. So wait, what's going on here? Is it really true? We can't learn anything from the failures. And that motivated me to try. And the first few times I tried, it was actually a disaster. You'll appreciate this because MBAs are taught to analyze, to think critically, to be very critical. And if you sort of lay out the story of a failure, the response you tend to get as they look in the rearview mirror is, well, kind of obvious why that failed. And it's like, yeah, because <laughs> if I told you the whole story, but. Well, it's hindsight bias, right? Whether it's successful or unsuccessful. Yeah, exactly. Power, powerful hindsight bias. So it took a while to learn how to teach these cases. And I now, I have a course, as you indicated, that's focused solely on entrepreneurial failure. And I do a trick, you know, you're probably bringing guests into class at, at HBS. When we do that, we tend to, with 80 minute classes, 
lead the class discussion, the professor for the first 60 minutes and have the guest sits like a bump on the log listening for that 60 minutes. And then comes in at the end. Everybody starts to know who it is after the first couple of classes, right? I identify them. We can't play that trick anymore. They know. And, you know, we bring the guest in at the end to update the students on what happened, react to the discussion and field questions. What I learned with the failure cases is to bring in the guest almost from minute one. And that has a powerful impact on the students. They look at this individual and they're impressive, right? Many founders are. And like, wow, this sharp person who, by the way, in the introduction I've learned has gone on to do after the failure, some pretty cool and impressive things, seems to have attracted a talented team and smart money. And yeah, maybe it's pretty obvious because we're in this course that they failed, but like from the facts, you've got, and I also sort of cut the case in half, right? I don't tell them the failure part of the story. I take the entrepreneur up to some critical decision. And so that really, it cancels the hindsight bias and gives the students, I think, respect for the entrepreneur and the challenges they face. And they start to view it now as a puzzle. Okay, so here this really impressive person failed and they seem to have gotten off to a good start. There was a lot of promise in the venture. What could have gone wrong? So it took a while to figure out how to teach this stuff. Look, here in Silicon Valley, we've got a mantra, which is, you know, fail fast and fail often. And I think it's often misunderstood, right? It's not like, you know, what's your goal? I want to fail. I used to teach corporate finance and we used to have a whole section on bankruptcy. And, and I remember the students would always come to me and say, why are we learning about bankruptcy? I don't have any, that's not part of my business plan, right? And it's like, you need to understand what happens even when you get close to it. And and I remember when I was in business school studying finance, there was like 50 finance classes at Wharton and there wasn't a single one on bankruptcy. And I had to go to the law school to kind of learn anything about bankruptcy. Uh, a colleague of mine teaches turnarounds. And, you know, at the end of the class, he says, look, most of you aren't going to go into the world of turnarounds, but best turnaround is the one that never happens. And so if you understand turnarounds, then you're going to better understand how to avoid creating a situation where a turnaround is necessary. So if fail fast, fail often is kind of the mantra here. Isn't the whole lean approach, wasn't that entirely motivated by this? Like, how do we de-risk our investments? I mean, the venture capitalists are essentially driving this process to some degree, run the experiments, run the tests and, and so forth. Isn't the entire lean approach about how to basically fail cheaply? I mean, don't we already have a playbook on the how-to on the failure side of things? And, and if you yeah. fail in a small way, then you can avoid failing in a big way? Yeah, that is a, a lean startup mantra, fail fast. And one of the things I emphasize in the book and in the course is there is such thing as a good failure. A good failure is where an entrepreneur sort of looking into the mist has a, has a hypothesis, a theory. Lean startup is all about testing hypotheses. And you can't deduce your way just dealing with facts and logic to figure out whether this entrepreneurial idea is actually a good one. You have to do stuff and you can try to launch cheap experiments to sort of get as much validation as you can before you make a big commitment. But sometimes you got to take the plunge and, uh, you know, an entrepreneur who has a theory and tests it and pivots in the mode of a lean startup in response to feedback, sort of changes the business model, tries something new, and you do a series of tests. If you don't waste time and you don't, don't waste money, and it was a reasonable set of assumptions you made, and uh, it doesn't work out, we should celebrate that as society, as investors, as employees, everybody connected with adventure should be proud of what they did. So there are good failures. One of the patterns in what you say about the turnarounds, exactly the motivation for the book and the course, which is there are recurring patterns. And if an aspiring entrepreneur can learn to spot them, it'll boost the chance they can avoid them. 
and probably the number one killer I've observed of early stage startups is what I call a false start. Think track and field or swimming. The athlete literally jumps the gun in order to get an edge. Entrepreneurs are wired up to do that. They are told an entrepreneur is somebody who makes things happen. They are itching to build and sell. They think that by putting a product out there fast, they're following lean startup logic. And in fact, they are. So minimum viable product, right? Get feedback from a real customer in a real world setting. They have skipped though, an important part of lean startup. So lean startup comes in two parts and I think people want to build. So they focus on the MVP, the minimum viable product. But, and Eric Reese has emphasized all that. Steve Blank, um, the other guru around lean startup, talks about customer discovery, which is a phase of basically research, talking to potential customers and experts before you start the engineering work and figure out if you've really found a problem worth solving and get some feedback on the solution before you build the solution. And what I find is that a lot of entrepreneurs skip that phase for a whole bunch of reasons, because entrepreneurs should make things happen because engineers in particular love to build stuff. So they want to get started building non-technical founders, which you and I um, work with a lot of MBAs lack a technical background here correctly that to succeed as an entrepreneur, you have to have great product. How do you get great product? You hire great engineers. How do you do that? You leverage the networking skills you are so good at as an MBA. So whether you're technical or non-technical, you've got this. And, and then by the way, once you bring those people on board, they're expensive if you're paying them. So you better put them to work and so build and sell. And the chance that first version of the product, if you've skipped the upfront research is going to hit the mark pretty low. So essentially you've wasted, call it four months building, selling a thing, and then figuring out that it isn't working and what to do next in order to save four weeks. It's a bad trade, sort of four months for four. And by four weeks, I mean the amount of time you might spend upfront talking to potential customers and doing focus groups and survey work and all that jazz. It's not a multi-year kind of effort, but it's skipped very frequently. And so people think they're following lean logic when in fact they're picked and chosen the parts of lean that they really love. I mean, the real option philosophy is all about accelerating the arrival of information, getting it as early as possible. But a lot of these false starts are driven by what you call false positives. Essentially, each one of these inquiries, each one of these tests is really, it's like a classifier, right? I teach data science. So I'm always thinking in terms of confusion matrices. So this is a, a classifier where you're trying to classify it into, Hey, potential, no potential. And if a test is poorly designed, it's going to spin up, it's probably going to spin up a lot of false negatives, but the danger here is that it spins up these false positives. So what is it about the design of these tests or surveys and maybe the, the mentality of the entrepreneur? that goes into the design of these experiments or surveys that is likely to lead to more false positives. Yeah. The false positives are, as you point out, tightly wrapped up with the false starts. And a lot of them come when the entrepreneur uh, gets a signal from early adopters that what they're doing, what they're building, what they have in mind is promising. And they're often early adopters out there that are foaming at the mouth. Just they've been waiting for days, months, years for what you're doing and they embrace you and they love you. And that's really for the entrepreneur, very exciting. And, um, I mean, the entrepreneur needs early adopters in order to get the business going. So they should be seeking out the early adopters and trying to satisfy their needs. The vexing part is it's often the case, the needs of early adopters are different than the needs of mainstream customers. And Jeffrey Moore would have talked about this as the chasm problem 20 years ago, and it's still, that chasm is still out there. 
It's often the case that early adopters are enthusiasts, visionaries who can put up with shoestring and bubble gum and a product and self-provision and so forth, whereas mainstream is going to want it all put out there or the needs just aren't as strongly felt as they are with the early adopters. And if there are big differences in needs and you go charging off with a product that's tuned to the early adopters, you're going to miss the mark with the mainstream. There are lots of ways to handle this. So, so and a good example of this is Dropbox. Yeah. Yeah. I like that story. Successful business. So to Dropbox, the early adopters were the geekiest of geeks on Hacker News and Drew Houston got feedback from them about this product he was building and their needs for file management in huge files, tunneling through firewalls, collaborating with multiple, with multiple parties on many different devices and so forth. But Drew knew to build a big business, he would have to design something in his words that was simple enough for my mother to use to store her recipes. And there are lots of ways you can do it as an entrepreneur. You can build for the early adopters and then hide features for the mainstream. You can build two versions of the product. You can do what Drew did, which is bet that a simpler version will be good enough for the early adopters because it'll be so much better than what messy and flawed solutions they were using up to that point that they will adopt despite missing some features that they wanted. The point is for an entrepreneur needs the early adopters, but they also need to understand whether the mainstream is different and they need a strategy for balancing any differences. It seems that this process of research is subject to all the same flaws of, you know, survey design, all the kinds of things that we teach in a, in a typical intro stats course, which is leading questions and sampling bias. And I guess when you have already a big install base, it's relatively easy just to harvest data, run A-B tests, get a good sense. But when you don't really have a database and you're creating the database that's supposed to be the representative sample, this is difficult, particularly if you have this confirmation bias, right? Where you're, you're already predisposed to think that you've got the greatest thing since sliced bread. Yeah, exactly. The mistake that so many entrepreneurs make when they're looking for this early input, they go into pitch mode and they're pretty good at it. And there's a wonderful book out there that called the mom test, which is basically tells the entrepreneur to basically your mother loves you. So she's going to tell you your idea is a good idea just because she wants to preserve your poor fragile ego. And a lot of people will deal with you when you're pitching as an entrepreneur, they think you're crazy. They just want to please you and make you go away. This sort of incredibly weird, intense person. Pitching is a really bad idea. There's a time and a place for it, of course, but when you're trying to figure out if you've got the right solution, that's not the time. Oh, I see a lot of students start businesses that are you know, really all about satisfying the demands of students like themselves. <laughs> and, then, and then even there, they overestimate the desire because their classmates are so supportive. It's like if you ask somebody, hey, what do you think about my spouse? Right? No one's going to say, well, I don't know. That's probably, probably not the right spouse for you. You know, everyone's going to be, be very, very... Yeah, if I had a dollar for every group travel planning service that my MBAs tried to launch, you and I could have a feast. But you also talk about these catch-22s. And this is, I think about this from the perspective of the venture capitalist, right? The venture capitalist is trying to reduce risk, but you know, how do you reduce risk without also simultaneously reducing the upside and reducing the opportunity? If you, you wait too long, if you try to de-risk it by stripping it of all of its novelty, right? Then you're not going to have kind of a home run on your hands. So how do you balance the de-risking with the preservation of the opportunity and the upside? So uh, catch 22, I hope all your listeners know, know what it is. It's a logical impasse that takes the form can't have A without B and can't have B without A. So you can't get a job without experience and you can't get experience without having a job. For the entrepreneur, the catch 22 is 
you to bring people on board, investors and employees, you need to, as you say, de-risk, but in order to de-risk, you probably have to push the idea far enough to prove that it's safe and sound. And to do that takes resources. So you can't get the resources without de-risking and you can't de-risk without the resources. What we observe is entrepreneurs have a, a lot of things in their toolkit to get around that problem, including staged financing, right? Sort of take the money a little bit at the time and see if you can reach a milestone and, and if it's working. And then some, either those investors or other investors will give you more money. Storytelling conveying such a brilliant vision of the future that people just can't resist coming on board, you know, either working hundred hour work weeks or giving you access to their distribution channels or investing in the company and lean testing. In theory, lean testing is a way to de-risk with the minimum of resources. So there, there are different ways to do it, but as you say, each of these things comes with barrel, right? So it's sort of stage financing assumes you're going to get a good investor on board in the first place and you won't run into a dry spell in the capital markets along the way. Storytelling can go awry when you come so persuaded by your own story that you can't see the universe is trying to tell you something different. One of the big issues that you talk about is scaling too fast, right? And getting out in front of your own feet and falling flat on your face because you're trying to do kind of too much. But that, that's a, also kind of a catch-22, right? Because for a lot of these businesses, the name of the game is to get out there before anybody else. And so I think of this from the financing perspective, right? Can a company have too much financing? Can they be given too much uh, rope? And is part of the job of the venture capitalist to, as you say, with the staged financing, kind of rein in the entrepreneurs, right? Is there a division of labor here between the entrepreneur who wants to plow head full speed, never say no to a scaling opportunity and the venture capitalist who's kind of like the CFO, I guess, who's saying, hold on a second, let's, let's have some discipline. I think of WeWork and, and what a disaster WeWork was. And I think that's really falls on the venture capitalists, in my view, for giving them so much money without insisting on some kind of performance metrics. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. You probably use cases from my colleague, Bill Solomon, and expression Bill uses all the time is the horse race for the entrepreneur between fear and greed when they're figuring out how much to raise. The greed is if you take less money, in theory, just enough to reach the next milestone, you'll suffer less dilution because when you reach the next milestone and raise the next round, it'll be a higher valuation. The fear, of course, is you'll stumble along the way and have to pivot and need more time than you thought. So that's a tricky one for the entrepreneur. And, and then it gets even trickier, as you point out with a WeWork example and, and so many others, when the money comes in at an enormous valuation. I mean, it's really hard for an entrepreneur to turn that down. Lots of money at a very high valuation. On the other hand, you know, somebody needs to whisper in their ear that high valuation assumes that your next round is going to be at an even higher valuation. If you're already up Icarus where the air is thin and the sun is burning your wax wings brightly and you can't have an up round next time around, things can unravel really quickly as they do in a lot of these late stage startups that have a down round and the employees see their options are worthless and the next round of investors, the existing investors won't bridge. They encourage the entrepreneur to go try to find some new money. The new money will wonder why the existing investors aren't going to take their pro rata. Yeah, the thing can spiral out of control pretty quickly when it goes bad. Sometimes you use that famous uh, metaphor, the rider and the horse. And the venture capitalists always say, bet on the rider, not on the horse. And it was the first time I saw this number that you presented, which is I think 60% of startups by the time they reach series D, the founder is no longer the CEO. So we, we tend to see this attrition at a relatively high rate. But we think that entrepreneurs are people who are 
persistent. They, they have the, the kind of grit and the stick to And these people got the funding early on, presumably because people had faith in them as individuals. But if they're demoted at some point, it must be that the faith has shifted more to the horse. How does that dynamic play out? To the horse or to a new jockey, maybe. We tend to easily remember the entrepreneurs who make it all the way from glimmer in the eye to a trillion dollar valuation, the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates and the Jeff Bezoses. But they are the exception rather than the rule. As you point out, 60% of founder CEOs will be replaced in the CEO role by the time you get to about five years, seven years out, Series D. And that's because the management task at that stage, you know, the Series D company is just so fundamentally different in a big organization with lots of processes and structure, probably launching new products. Maybe the product line is maturing and you got to figure out whether to renovate it or move on to something else. The competitions come out. It's just so fundamentally different than what you need to do to succeed as an early stage entrepreneur. It's a pretty rare individual that is good at both stages. And I don't think Fred Wilson in a blog post talks about turning over the entire senior management team. And he assumes that between start and say IPO or late stage success, a typical startup will turn the entire team three times. It's true in every function. The product leader early on will be different than the person who's going to run product later on in marketing and sales and engineering and so forth. I don't think we should be surprised that the same thing is true for the CEO. One of the things that we usually encourage our students to have in our classes is a disposition that can be described as strong opinions weekly held. And that seems like a difficult balance, but the whole idea of pivoting and making modifications to the business Obviously, there's going to be some bullheaded people that are going to refuse to pivot. And those tend to be, entrepreneurs tend to be bullheaded, right? I mean, what is it about that disposition that an entrepreneur needs to have, that little appropriate humility, right? How do you, how do you have that humility while at the same time exude that confidence that attracts investors, that attracts employees and moves things forward? Yeah, I think this is the grand mystery of entrepreneurship because you're, um, to get the resources to do something new and interesting. You got to sell and you got to paint this vision and you got to project, just as you say, the confidence that people will respond and they do respond to it. And you've invested a lot of, of energy and ego into that pitch. And to come back to those same people, whether they be your employees or your investors, your strategic partners, six months later and say, hey, that thing that I was so excited about six months ago, eh, we're going to take a different approach. That takes a really flexible and resilient ego to be able to do both of those things. And some entrepreneurs can do it. Some entrepreneurs are lucky enough that they never have to do it. And many entrepreneurs can't. They get stuck. And as you say, stubbornly stick with the original plan to their fault. And the, the book has a chapter on better place. Shia Gassi was the entrepreneur, raised $900 million in 2008 before there were many electric car. The only electric car on the road was the Tesla Roadster, which cost $110,000. And the big fear was range anxiety. The cars then would only go hundred miles before they had to be recharged. So Shai wanted to blanket the world with recharging stations, including robot stations where the robot would pull out the depleted battery in five minutes, pop in a new one. It's actually a good idea. The world in 2021 needs this and somebody's going to build it. But 2008 was too early and he made too big a bet on the 
battery swapping stations and turned out that a competing and ultimately reasonably viable technology was fast charging. If you drive from LA to San Francisco in a Tesla, you can fast charge along the way. It does damage the battery, which everybody was worried about, but not by enough to make it a bad idea. Shai could have pivoted to other technologies, but he truly believed in what he was doing. Well, you point to narcissism as a personality trait that you often see in entrepreneurs. And I, I think you see it in CEOs uh, as well, right? It's not just limited to founders and entrepreneurs. You kind of also distinguish between kind of some of the more positive traits associated with narcissism and then the, the more negative ones. I was wondering if you could help us understand the, the difference there. Yeah, there's a famous Harvard Business Review article that I think it's called The Narcissist CEO, The Incredible Pros and the Inevitable Cons, which lays out this argument that a narcissist will rivet people, can dazzle them, and can project a powerful vision. But when it turns dark, the person can be so defensive that they won't listen to others. They can take too much credit for success and, and sort of push the blame for failure elsewhere and it can basically be manipulative and use people up. So you get a, um, a narcissist with the dark side personality elements in charge and you got a hell of a problem. Basically the senior management team will get depleted to the point where you have nothing but yes men and yes women. And so team is not going to provide much ballast and it comes at that point up to a board of directors. And I think, I suspect you probably saw a lot of this with Theranos. If the board is not up to the task, not close enough to the individual, it's going to be hard. This person doesn't want to change. It's a real trick to get them aware of the of self-destructive behaviors and, and the fact that it could be putting the venture in peril. We talk about how companies need to instrument everything, right? Instrument your product, instrument your employment environment, like instrument everything, track everything. And it seems that if you're trying to avoid crashing, you want to instrument the you know, the vehicle as much as possible. So how can entrepreneurs instrument their business so that they can get early kind of warning signs about obstacles in their way? And one of the things that I think that you talk about in the book is how your board is there as a potential, right, sensor, right? And most, a lot of companies don't make good use of their board. Last night I had dinner with a friend of mine who's got a startup and he's a founder and his CEO, whenever the CEO is meeting with the board, essentially tries to figure out how to create a Potemkin village that, you know, makes the company look good. And he's like, well, isn't this kind of defeating the purpose? To what extent is the board and your investors a potential source of wisdom, insight, and guidance? Is there any reason why you might want to be wary of their interests? Sometimes Series C investors or their interests aren't always, they're not always aligned with the founders, Ooh, yeah. right? Yeah. Not only with the founders, but with each other. So in any successful startup, you're going to have investors who came on board early on, see Series A and folks who came in at a very successful startup, a very high price in Series D or E, that Series D investor needs the opportunity for a threefold return on their investment in order to be happy. And to do that, probably have to do something. It is a big company at this stage, right? So we've conquered the United States. It's time to go to Europe because we can double the scale of the business that way. And Boy, that's a risky move. Whereas the Series A or seed investor is looking at this thing saying, hey, it's working in the U.S. If we sold it or took it public now, I'm going to make 40 times my original investment. Or we can roll the dice and I can make 70 times my investment if Europe works. But, but boy, I'll take 40 all day long. So you get board conflict, you know, Felda Hardiman, who you probably know, was a VC from Highland who taught Harvard Business School for many years, entrepreneurial finance would in teaching the students what happens in a startup board meeting the, the impulse of the students is always to turn it when they're facing some vexing problem 
to have the CEO lead a debate and sort of get the input from all the board members, which sounds like a perfectly rational thing to do. And Hilda's point would always be a board meeting is no place for a debate. If you as CEO don't walk into that board meeting with a plan, you're going to lose the confidence of the board. You can syndicate your ideas with individual board members beforehand and do a little bit of debating then. But it's hard, right? Because our impulses, if you show as a leader any self-doubt, that's going to ramify. But if you don't, you may end up stubbornly attached to a flawed strategy and not take full advantage of, of these smart people that are looking out for you. So it's a tough one. And most of our MBA students are so far from the role that I think we don't spend much time on it. And we send them off into a world where they have to figure out this very hard problem by themselves. Well, I think in every process, there's, you need a stopping rule, right? You need to know when to stop. And in the United States, we are all raised with the story of the little locomotive that could. And I think that whole mythology might lead us to stop too late. And particularly when, and we talk about this in large companies, when is the time for a large company to pitch its tents, give the money back to the shareholders and say, you know what, we're Kodak and we missed the boat. Let's close up shop. I think a lot of the oil companies are having this debate right now. You know, do you just double down on thermal and ride off into the sunset? Or do you try to reinvent yourself with clean energy? And this is particularly difficult decision for startups. I don't know if you've seen these studies that show at least among male founders, I don't think they've done this with female founders, but with male founders, when they're thinking about their startup, it activates the same part of the brain as when you think about your children, right? It's a very strong commitment and responsibility. And so for you to, you know, just pull the plug on the startup is akin to killing your children, not even talking about the team and all the other people that you have responsibility for. I mean, this must be an extremely difficult decision. Like how do people, as an investor, you probably wouldn't want someone who didn't get emotionally involved. You wouldn't want a founder who's like, all right, well, I guess we missed the boat on that one. Let's just move on. Like you don't want someone like that, but you also don't want someone who's going to entrench themselves and escalate commitment all the way to the bitter end. Yeah. And so in the research for the book, I talked to lots, scores of failed founders. And when you ask them, do you wish you had shut down sooner? They don't always say yes, but I would say a, a large fraction say, yeah, the writing was on the wall. And if we had shut down sooner, I could have paid some severance to my employees, the sort of vendors that my law firm that I ended up owing money to uh, might've been paid. I could have given back a nickel on the original dollar to my investors and they would have liked that better than zero, et cetera. And we all could have moved on to new projects sooner and moved on with our lives. My team was loyal to the end and I, I'm grateful for that, but should have released them. And you know, what I came to realize is there's a at least a half dozen reasons, and you've hit on some of them. I mean, the identity of an entrepreneur is so wrapped up in the business, but just the identity of an entrepreneur is somebody who persists. Good entrepreneur is gritty, little engine, and you keep going and you hope for a miracle. And we celebrate these 11th hour, 24th hour miracle rescues where somebody gets, sees a turnaround. And what I didn't really appreciate until I got deeper into the research was there's this choreographed set of moves that any struggling startup goes through. Over and over again, you see, that, and they tend to go in the same order, which is, it ain't working. We need to raise more money. Existing investors say, hey, would be really good if you got that money from somebody new and you try that and that doesn't work. And then the investors say, maybe it's time to sell and you try that. And you initially get all sorts of interest because who wouldn't want to sort of see, lift up Kick the, the tires. hood. Yeah. But eventually um, you get strung along and, and nothing happens. Then you try to get a bridge loan from 
existing investors and that's a disaster full of emotion. Some people will, will do it if they can jam down everybody else and, but you need the board's approval and the board's at odds with each other over whether this is a good idea. You try layoffs, you try pivots, all these things take time to play out. In the meantime, it's rarely like a decisive moment that sort of says it's over. It's usually some series of ups and downs, more downs than ups, but you have reason for hope along the way. People are counting on you. Employees get their health benefits. Somebody's family is about to have a kid and that's how they're going to cover. People believed in you and you can defer the gigantic ego slam you're going to get from shutting it down if you just wait. So hoping for a miracle, too many entrepreneurs run the bank balance down to zero. And as a result, people who are owed money don't get paid. That's, I think, behind the waiting too long and, and why it's so hard to come up with the stopping rule, as you say. Well, I mean, you talk about running on fumes and it seems like retrenching, even though oftentimes that's probably necessary move before conceding failure. It seems like retrenching is a very difficult thing to do as a startup. The whole business is built on momentum. And so if you start cutting, trying to cut your losses and retrench, I mean, this is essentially a signal to all the folks on board that it's time for them to jump ship. So, you know, that may be one reason why you do everything you can to avoid retrenching, to avoid a down round. And avoid, in a lot of cases, even being transparent with the team about what's really going on, because basically you owe it to them on the one hand, but on the other hand, if you're transparent, they may make a very rational decision to leave. So how can you gracefully fail? As you mentioned, the possibility of a graceful failure. Should we have a playbook for that? Should we talk to founders and say, okay, look, here's what you got to do. If it's almost when you get married, they should hand you a, like, here, here's your divorce handbook, right? <laughs> if you hit the rocks, you know, do this. Is that already an admission of, but do you, do you want to not think about that? I mean, when do you start thinking about graceful exit? I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs do this. And in my view, a graceful exit has at least two important elements. It's timed in a way that People who are owed money get paid. Employees get some severance. You help your employees find a job. You move your customers over to somebody else who can serve them. Anybody who's been supplying you, any vendor gets paid. And by the way, the tax authorities are, as you know, from teaching, <laughs> teaching bankruptcy first in line. So that's one element of it. And that goes a long way to preserving relationships, right? If people think you've been, you've communicated clearly, appropriately. You can't have 100% transparency, you know, at least once you decided to pull the plug. A lot of entrepreneurs will go very silent when they're struggling. They're ashamed and not talk to investors. So it comes, particularly somebody's not on the board, it may just come out of the blue that this thing you thought was doing so great. You haven't heard from them in four months and all of a sudden they're shutting down. The graceful shutdown preserves those relationships by treating people ethically and, and responsibly. And the other part of a graceful shutdown is an entrepreneur actually learning from the experience. And that turns out to be surprisingly hard because again, to your point about the parts of the brain that are activated by thinking of your children, you've wrapped up so much emotion in this thing that the strong emotions will cloud your ability to make sense of what happened. And we're wired up as humans to be ego defensive. And basically if things go bad, blame other people or the universe rather than ourselves for what went on. And so it's a continuum actually with a, a lot of founders at that extreme. My co-founder lost interest. My investor pushed for the wrong strategy. My competitor did something irrational. The regulator surprised us with these moves. 
All those things are true. You pick the investor, you pick the co-founder. At the other extreme is are some founders that actually take too much responsibility. They conclude that they were hapless and hopeless as entrepreneurs. They never should have done it. They never should do it again. And that might be right. There are some people who are just poorly suited for the role, but usually that's not the case. And society is now deprived of the, what this person might launch the next time around. So you want to find that middle where you can actually understand the failure, your role in it. And that just takes some emotional distance. It usually takes a matter of weeks or months of when you're alternating between rumination and distraction. If it's 100% rumination, you're going to make yourself crazy, perhaps clinically depressed, and no one wants that. If it's 100% distraction, so to go side projects or do yoga, whatever it is, you're never going to make sense of what happened. So you, you have to alternate between the two and let the emotions subside, find your role in the failure, and crucially be able to explain it to people. And what we find is the founders who failed gracefully in ways that sort of people would say, yeah, they, they held up their end and who can explain what went wrong and what they learned from it, they come back and do it again. Those are the founders I like to show my students in class. There are other approaches to failing out that are less worthy. Well, I mean, you talk about the emotional impact of failure, and it seems that you really do need a certain type of resilience and a certain ability to learn from one's failures. And I think that perhaps the same attributes that would enable you to learn from the early failures, which would enable you to pivot well and so forth, that's sort of the same character trait that you need to survive a big failure. And I wonder in a more traditional economy where you go and work for GE and spend 50 years at GE and maybe, okay, maybe you missed a promotion this year, but then you get it next year. And it seems like that generation of people are in that kind of economy, that emotional resilience was really not as necessary, maybe a different type of emotional resilience. You know, maybe you're dealing with more office politics or something, but can we help people learn that emotional resilience? I mean, should we be thinking in business schools about teaching that part of what it means to be a business person? Very few classes where they, the subject matters like emotional resilience, <laughs> like you learn strategy, you learn finance and so forth. And, but I think a big part of our jobs in business school is to teach people character and teach them kind of yeah, character traits. Yeah. And we've got colleagues that I think have done more on this front. I, I took this course from a half course, which was focused on the failure patterns and touching on the how to fail question. And, um, this year we're going to expand it to a full course, double the length. And the entire second half is going to be focused on how to fail. And so we'll explore the many different dimensions, but what I haven't given thought to, and this is a fantastic conversation because it pushed me to think about it is how do you get the students to actually wrestle with it? I've seen some folks do things like a failure resume, where basically you get the students to literally list the thing. And as you point out, there may not be that many of them for a successful MBA who sort of rocketed through their first job out of college and got into a top business school and had a wonderful summer job. That may be a pretty short resume. But I'm eager to, I think showing role models can help along these lines and getting the role models to talk about what it felt like and what they went through and how they coped with it can help. But, you know, again, it's this difference between personal learning and direct experience and vicarious learning. Well, I think these people who are coming out of these startups, right, as you say, they need some perhaps training on how to emotionally deal with what they've gone through and also how do they get the right lessons from it so that they can turn around and do the next one. Maybe this is an opportunity for an executive education program where, you know, you recruit failed founders and they all come in and bring them back, share their experiences and learn from one another so that they can be, I think they, they would do this in combat, right? So you'd get injured in the trenches and they'd bring you back 
you know, and uh, patch you up and then, you know, send you back out, right? Well, Greg, you're right. The, the Army's actually really good at this. They have institutionalized a thing called an after-action review, where basically a team, they were supposed to do something. They came come together, what was a success or a failure, you know? Uh, what we try to do, what happened, what went right, what went wrong, and what can we learn from that? That's pretty straightforward. But as you say, if you could s- sort of get accustomed to dealing with it and the, the day-to-day ups and downs, I think it does build some muscle that would help with the big failures. I think failure is always going to be with us. I mean, the better we get at avoiding it, the more we're still going to have because I think investors aren't going to move away from this model of low probability, high returns. So as we just get better and better, we don't have too many of the web vans. We've learned a lot of lessons since the 90s, but the hit rate hasn't gone up. So it's just that the standard just keeps shifting. So failure will be with us as as long as we have venture capital, as long as we have startups. So Tom, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me. The book here is Why Startups Fail. Read it before you do your startup. Read it while you're doing your startup. And even after you've failed in your startup, read the book and hopefully you'll learn a whole bunch from it. Appreciate you for joining me. Great. Thank you, Greg. That was a blast. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.